Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. How about those Chiefs? Woo! <laughs> Patty slept in her Chiefs t-shirt last night. <laughs> she it was, was so excited about just it. Just Scott and I here, but I lost my voice at some point. Yeah, I was screaming at the TV set. It was... Yeah. It was great. And sometimes you were screaming at them, actually. I really was. Sometimes Whenever you I was... felt like the Chiefs really weren't performing <gasps> the way that, that your beloved boys should. Yes. Yes, you let them know it. I did. I let yes. them know. Why aren't you protecting Patrick? That was mostly what I was screaming. <laughs> mostly what you would say. Yes, yes, yes. Nothing matters more than protecting Patrick. <laughs> so, yeah, it's announced post-Super Bowl Monday. Yes. And now yeah. it's... Pre-Valentine's Day. And pre-Ash Wednesday, Monday. That's right. That's right. So, big, big day. That's right. Bree Holly Stevens, who's coming on Thursday morning. That's right. That'll be a... Yes, and again, it is Thursday. It's Thursdays. (laughs) Somehow, we don't know how. I promise it was not me. I have nothing to do with the newsletters that come out. But it said Tuesday. February 15th. February 15th. Which doesn't work. No matter what calendar you're using, it doesn't work. So, anyway... We're Would glad everybody is here. On your stuff. That says there. Okay. Is yes, Susan, I totally agree with you. That first half, oh my gosh, it was pretty boring. It was pretty boring. But A good time to catch, catch up on your email. Yes. <laughs> I was doing some shopping online. I won't lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, but then... It was 100% attention. Doug, I'm not sure exactly would I put, would you put the date on your stuff? Um, I'm not sure if, do you mean second X stuff? Um, if you want second X stuff date, I can give you that. Or is it something regarding Scott's stuff? But this, this, this Thursday is when Holly Stevens is coming up. That's the next right. big second right. act. But there are a lot of other second acts that are not, like, directly under me. Um, they're uh, Debbie Raider's group, who is the um, socializing group. And there's a number, really, three socialize events right. in the next month, both from our class and two things on second acts. So, anyway, if that's what you mean. So, please let me know, and I'll be happy to shoot you the dates. Anyway, Scott, how are you doing right now? Doing pretty well. Doing good. Doing well. I'm. You notice I'm. I only have a Henley collar on today. This was a Christmas present from my wife, so yeah. I feel kind of funny when a shirt without a collar. But it has a. What do you call it? A Henley collar. It has a Henley. Yeah. You yeah. Got the little buttons down got there. Got the little in the buttons front. down here. Oh, I'm feeling so youthful. Little J. Crew. Yeah, feeling so youthful. <laughs> <laughs> I had anyway. to convince them to wear it. I was yeah. like, it's okay. You can, this is this is good. Because I, I generally almost always wear collars. You do. Yeah, you do. I do. Cover up more is what my motto, but this time we're going for it. <laughs> we're going for it. So, okay, well, we're going to be back at the Book of Numbers today. And today we are going to finish off, finish off, I mean finish off that rebellious generation. There's a big transition we're coming up to. Almost there. Wow. Almost there. Yeah. So, anyway, shall I start? Yes, go ahead. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Monday, and we come here to continue to make our way through this book of Numbers, which was really a book, honestly, I bet none of us knew hardly anything about. And it's been quite a journey, and there have been a lot of things in there that have surprised us, and um, 
We pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to kind of open this up and and get into it and and see in it the continuing revelation of who you are and 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 who we are and um, the problem which required the arrival of your son Jesus. So with all that, we pray it in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, Alrighty. thank you, Patty. I'm going on over. All right. Boom. So we are at the beginning of Numbers 25 because last week we finished up all of the uh, story of Balak, Balaam, Balak, the talking donkey, the whole the whole thing. So um, I'm just going to put my phone here on do not disturb. Boom, boom, boom. So we're all set. So anyway, glad to see that so many people are here, here with us today. Okay, I um, did see that uh, Doug put something here, the date of the Bible study, so I can make sure I get the correct one. Scott, I'm imagining that is your... Yes, which may change Maybe, a yes. bit because there's a potential conflict. So we'll get we'll get that all out to everybody. Yes. Um well in advance. It won't be till April. And uh but yeah, we may need to make a change in that. So anyway, there we go. <coughs> Don't write if you go if it's yeah. So often things need to be written in pencil and not pen, right? Okay, so let's talk about numbers. Where the overview. Let's get into the helicopter for a minute. When the book of Numbers opens, the tribes are still encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they went after they crossed the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai, they encounter God, um, God gives them his law, God gives them the instructions for building the tabernacle, they build the tabernacle. Um, the book of Leviticus contains more law, largely almost entirely and in numbers 20 in numbers chapter 1 when it begins they're still there at mount sinai and we saw that the first 10 chapters of numbers is all about them getting ready right who's going to do what work um doing this census this counting of everybody they're gonna they're gonna march to the promised land in by tribe and so this census is done now it's a census of the men over 20, and there are about 600,000 um, as recounted in the Hebrew Bible, and they are going, these tribes, by tribe, by family, by kinship group, they are going to make their way from Mount Sinai up to the Promised Land. And so in relatively short order, it's only a few chapters long, you have this huge pivotal moment, right? Uh, besides their whining and wanting meat and they get the quill, you come to this moment where they have reached the promised land and spies are sent in, 12 of them, one from each tribe, and only two actually want to go ahead and enter the promised land, those two being Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 say, nope, 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 nope. Too scary, the people are too pop, too many of them, they're like, giants or whatever it is it doesn't matter they are refusing to trust god they are refusing to trust god and of course 
for every preacher, that's a real preachable story, right? They are refusing to trust God. And God's response to them is to say, well, okay. You're adults. Okay. I can't make you. I'm not going to make you do it. Instead, you will wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until you all die and your children and your children's children grow up and become of age and they will enter the promised land. And that is where we have been ever since then. So these last chapters have been all about the um, uh, still in this wilderness phase, this wandering the wilderness. It's going to take 40 years which is, you know, a long time. They're not, they're not really lost. It's all happening on the eastern side of the Rift Valley made by the Jordan River. But, and we're not given much in the way of time cues. How long do they spend in a place? They might spend years somewhere. We're not really given any of that. We're given these, this, this episodic narrative about things that happen. And in several chapters in that were, is where we spent in the story of Balaam and Balak and the talking talkie where this non-Israelite who knows God is sent for by the king of the Moabites to come and curse the Israelites. And of course, that can't happen. The God of Abraham, Isaac is never going to allow someone to curse his people. In there, that's a good teaching moment. I think too often the sermons focus on the talking donkey, which is um, funny aside in the story, but the big part of the story is the fact that these are God's people. As is recounted, Old Testament and New, he will be their God and they will be his people. He will be their God and they will be his people. And so God is God is not going to curse them. And so the king of Moab is just disappointed because its blessings pour out on them instead. So now we come to chapter 25. Chapter 25, it's a story. We're going to read it. Let me tell you what's happening here. It is the last story which illustrates the death of a lot of that first generation. So it's like it's the last piece of the first generation being sort of swept off the board. Because after that, we're going to move on and focus on the younger generation, the ones who will actually go into the promised land under God's leadership, and Joshua will be their their um, earthly the earthly leader, but 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 God is their king. God is their is their commander in chief, as it were. So, without even my asking you, I bet you could tell me, based upon what I said, that chapter twenty-five in this is going to be about rebellion, because every story that leads to the death of the first generation is about rebellion. That leads to plagues, or it leads to snakes, or it leads to, it doesn't matter. 
they are a rebellious generation. They were a rebellious generation when they reached Mount Sinai. They were a rebellious generation when they crossed the Red Sea. It's been their hallmark. Their hallmark. And um, so now I've got, I want to show you a little bit of map work. Not much, but just, just a tad. One second. Okay, there we go. So this is the map. <coughs> it, it The red line is just kind of showing them on the eastern side of the the rift valley it's a rift vac it's called a rift valley because two tectonic plates meet there right two and and account for the dramatic um landscape they account for the fact that the dead sea is the lowest place on earth they account for the dramatic the drama of the sea of galilee which is like 600 feet below sea level um so they are on the eastern side in what today we would call uh, largely Jordan, okay? So if you look up at the top, there's a little place called Shittim. That is in the region of the Moabites. And if you look down to the south in the pink, that is the land of the Midianites. So just kind of keep this in mind. There's nothing complicated here that matters with regard to the geography. Okay, so... Look at 25, verse 1. We'll get a little ways in. And if you have, as always, if you have questions or things that you want to yeah. act, or things you've observed that you want to interject, that's great. While Israel, that is the whole, that is the all of the tribes, right? That that's Israel is this word that can be used several ways. It's the name given to Jacob. It denotes the, the 12 tribes. It becomes the name of the northern kingdom. Um, they are Israelites, right? So, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. Well, there you have it. First verse, right off the bat, you know, the sexual immorality is one thing, but the the fatal, the fatal flaw of the Israelites is that they will embrace these pagan gods. Remember what um, one of the Ten Commandments is right at the top, right at the front. You are to have no other gods but me. I am a jealous God. I am your God. Do not go chasing after all of these pagan gods and goddesses. That leads to restrictions, laws against intermarrying with these pagan tribes because God knows full well that if they start hanging around with and, you know, marrying Moabite women, that they are going to end up chasing after pagan gods. It is the tragic story of the Old Testament. It is, the, it, it is told in spades in the story of Solomon. Oh, in um, First Kings, it, we're told that Solomon had a, 300 wives and 700 concubines, and they were all foreigners. 
which is an awfully big harem, but that isn't really the focus. The focus is that all of them come from other lands and they bring into Israel their gods and their goddesses, their Baals and their Asherah poles and the rest of it. So here we have, not surprisingly, given everything that's happened, going to Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, since Mount Sinai, that they are, um, they're going to chase after these pagan women and soon their gods. So, verse 2, the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. It is a repeat of what happened at the bottom of Mount Sinai when Moses is up on the mountaintop and what do they do at the bottom? Make they that make that golden calf. What And what adjective do we put with golden calf, honey? That stupid, stupid golden, golden calf. calf. <laughs> exactly. That stupid golden calf and they worship it and they thank this golden calf for, you know, getting them out of Egypt and it's just awful. It's just, like I've said many times, it is the darkest moment for, for the rabbis. It was the darkest moment in the Old Testament. I think it should be for us on a par with the rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3. It, it, it's illustrative of our problem. We want to rebel against God. And you see it played out in our world, our society, our culture, day after day, time after time. And it's just not a news story, is it? Rebelling against God, rebelling against Christianity, denying Christianity, chasing after, you know, um, pagan gods or chasing after gods who don't exist. That's not new. That's what this story, that's what these stories are about. Verse three. So Israel yoked themselves. Right? What's a yoke? A yoke is what connects an oxen to the wagon. So they yoked themselves to the Baal. Baal is a primary god in Canaan. To the Baal of Peor. To a this this in, for the locals in Moab, a dominant god, a god that they would worship, a god that they would make sacrifices to, they would carve and build, you know, figurines and other things, statues, whatever they might be, um, to this god. But that's not to be the Israelites. They aren't to make graven images, like we talked about a couple weeks ago around the snakes. They aren't to make graven images of God, and they generally stayed away from making graven images of anything because... Everybody worshipped them of all kinds. So, so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and Yahweh's anger burned against them. It, remember, if, you, if you've been through the book of Exodus, remember what God's response is to the rebellion at the foot of Mount Sinai when they make that stupid golden calf? God, God says to Moses, I, I, I'm not going. I'm not going on. I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going because they, they're going to rebel and they are going to be consumed by my wrath. 
and I usually teach that as a metaphoric way of understanding it is God's wrath is, is just God's holiness and they can't abide God's holiness and not be consumed because they're not holy. And it isn't that God is waiting to smite them. It, their rebelliousness, their sinfulness gets them consumed by the holiness of God. I think that is the best, truest way to think about it across the Old Testament. So, of course, God is angry with them. You know? They made a promise at Mount Sinai. If you go back and you read the book of Exodus, chapters 20 and or so, 19 and 20, they three times in that story, they make a commitment. They're told that they're asked, are you ready? And they say, yes. Do you really want to? Yes. They make a commitment and then they just prove unwilling to keep it. So, what is God to do? So Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before Yahweh, so that Yahweh's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. I had a fellow in one of my classes once who said, you know, it is, it is, I see this as, as like a, these people are like a cancer. God is trying to do important things through, through the Israelites. They are the ones to whom all of creation is going to be redeemed and renewed. And this constant, constant, constant rebellion is like a cancer. Maybe he was right. So Moses said to Israel's judges, okay, these are the leaders of the tribes, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Everyone who's participating in the rebellion is condemned to death. Verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman, she would be a pagan woman as well, right before the eyes of Moses, right there in front of everybody. That's how bold the guy is. He knows he is not to do this. This is bald face breaking of the law of Moses, and he brings this Midianite woman right in front of Moses, right in front of the whole assembly, while they were weeping, right? there. What are they weeping over? They're weeping over the fact that their rebelliousness is leading to more death. While they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly. He just, they're all gathered, they're weeping. The man is there with this pagan woman he's bringing in. And, you know, Phinehas heads out. He left the assembly and he took a spear in his hand and he followed the Israelite who is unnamed, as is the woman, into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. 
but those who died in the plague and if you're if you're asking well, what what the what about how the plague uh, plague start what's going on we're not really told the thing to focus on is that this is the first generation passing away they don't all just die in old age it is their rebelliousness that leads to their end and i i I know we're tempted in light of the way we understand Jesus sometimes that and the love of grace and grace of God to think that well this rebellious rebelliousness doesn't doesn't matter doesn't matter God should go ahead and let them in the promised land they're just weak like we are and I guess my in my mind and heart and you can do this however you like for me, it is this project, this rescue project is so important that it must proceed this way. And if and 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 if it if it can't work, and indeed when it is obvious this project is not going to work then God takes on human flesh and becomes an Israelite and takes upon himself the suffering, the plague, as it were, and dies the horrific death on a Roman cross. So if you are quick, as some people are, to condemn God in this, you have to see that God enters into this suffering. That's the extent to which God is determined to rescue you and me and humanity. And, um, you know, it's fascinating to me that when you get into the book, into the letter, First Peter, there's an illusion in it, which is very difficult to interpret. A lot of disagreements about it, but I would like to think that it says in it that when Jesus, after he dies, he goes to the prison in like in the place of the dead and preaches the gospel even to the people from Noah's time, which was like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, even of Noah's time, Genesis 6. We just, you know, these people are, are are dying, but it is, what do we always say? It's not their end. They will be resurrected, just like you and I will be resurrected. We will all be resurrected, past, present, future. We will all be resurrected. But now in this time and place, yeah, that first generation is going to pass. And that's what this story is about. It's verse 10, it's, and it's the last one. I'm, I'm a bit grateful for that myself. Verse 10, Yahweh said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. How? By Phinehas demonstrating that he is willing to put an end to this. Granted, it's by driving a spear through the man and the woman, but there you go. Since he was as zealous, zealous, that's interesting. Okay, zealous. Um, if you read N.T. Wright, New Testament, 
He says, when you meet a zealous person in, in the Gospels, it's a word that meant that that always had an, always had a knife in the hand. You know, Simon the Zealot, a knife in the hand, ready to take up arms against Rome. You know, I never thought of it before, but in with regard to like the Old Testament, but that's exactly who Phineas is. He is so zealous for God that he actually did pick up a spear in his hand. Since he was as zealous for my honor, God says, among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. That's what Phineas has done, this strange, mysterious process by which the God of the cosmos is dwelling with these sinful, rebellious, way too um, broken people as people have always been. As people have always been. Verse 14, the name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. So he comes to the tribe of Simeon. Simeon is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby. <coughs> Maybe Cosby, but I'm going to use Cosby. Daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. So she is like, you know, in a chieftain's family. But no, no. Under the law of Moses, they simply did wrong. And it was led by the man. The man is the one who brought her into the assembly. And that way she's almost, I guess, could you call her an innocent patty? She's not bound by the law of Moses. The law of Moses right. is not given to everybody. That's right. It's really the man. It's it's the man who really does this to her. And isn't that a story of humanity? We drag others down with us. So, yeah. So, verse 16, Yahweh said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. That is not, that is not a new story. The Midianites are one of the traditional enemies of Israel. And I guess in the sense here is that they pose a threat to the Israelites and what God needs the Israelites to do. Verse 18, they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of this incident. Well, it kind of sounds to her like God is putting, turning it around and putting some blame on this woman. He does, doesn't he? Yes, it? yeah. Yeah. But to her, she was only following the practices that she, you know, her, her group believed in. Right. But, oh, wow. Wow. So, you know, if you're like me, maybe you are, it's, it, it's going to be glad... It's going to be good to turn the pages to chapter 26. Because now, the rebellious generation, that's what the chapter 25 really um, is representative of. 
It's like the end of the rebellious generation. And Phineas stands for the new day and the new covenant and the new blessing that's going to fall on the new generation, the generation that's going to enter the promised land. So, anybody got any thoughts or questions about that? You would like to add? I don't see anything written there. Scott, you were talking about the word zealous and zealot. Uh-huh. Um, somewhere in the New Testament, doesn't it call Paul a zealot also? Might. He's certainly, he, he, he certainly, he certainly zealous. I don't know if the word is used, but it could be because he's certainly zealous in his trying to, to, to chase down the Christians. Right? When he's like a monster yes. and stuff, just going through the church. Um, but it's just interesting to me that N.T. Wright says, look, in, in the Greco-Roman world, the Greek word zealous was usually one associated with rebels and people who had had knives in their hand. It's a very, it's a very strong word. You know, I, I don't know what, what that translates to in the world of Hebrew, you know, more a millennium and a half before Jesus, but clearly God was pleased with Phineas's zealousness because God is zealous. Who is God zealous for? Who is God ready to protect, even at the point of violence? The Israelites. His people, exactly. You know, you discover that really quickly when you see in the book of Exodus, when you see what happens to Pharaoh and his and his army, when you when um, the Israelites have to confront the Amalekites before they ever get to Mount Sinai, and God supports the Israelites and gives them victory over the Amalekites. You see it in a number of Old Testament stories, the stories of Samson and other ones where, you know, God is with his people in a very demonstrative way, even, even if it is violent. Right. Um, and it's understandable that people have, we, 2,000 years after Jesus, have some problems with that because that is not the path Jesus takes, right? He could have. He could have shown up and swept away the Romans actually, physically, but he does not. And so you have, what do you have in Scripture? You have this progressive revelation of who God is. From an ancient world, as I so often say, the world of Conan the Barbarian, forward and through the you know, the time of literacy and um, philosophers and uh, into the Greco-Roman world and Alexander and come, finally coming to um, the world of Jesus and Paul, which is long after these people. Jesus is nearly as far from, not quite, so I'm a couple of centuries off, but is about as far from these people as you and I are from Augustine. Uh Yeah. Augustine was 400, so we're 1,600 years Mm -hmm. 
after Augustine, that's that's about that's about this time, you know, that's in the neighborhood. People don't really agree about how to put this these stories on a timeline, but yeah. There we go. You know, I think it's interesting as you were first starting to read this passage to us, um, you actually said it out loud that the Israelite is not named. And then, of course, at the very end it is. And I'm wondering, since this really was an oral culture, and you've talked about like people sitting around, we joke around the campfire telling stories. I wonder if they were named almost so that it was kind of like a lesson. You know, like some other woman comes into the camp and they could you know tell their sons you stay away from that you little cosby. cosby because yes. what what do names do names take generalities yes. and turn them into specifics mm-hmm. yes right into yes. particulars yes and naming is very important to the jews that's why they have their genealogies first gospel got matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy yes. luke has in his gospel, a genealogy, it it is a way of telling, of telling the story, and so the names are preserved because they make it particular. And I would think in this case that had to be before this was actually put down. Like I was joking about mothers, but you know, you yes, stay away there's... from her. Don't you remember what happened to Zimri? You know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like it's like the, all these threads of remembering come together. And are on this scroll. Yes. And it's possible there's one thread which didn't know their names and another thread which did, and they both end up on the page. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But especially since it was oral, that it it made, yes, it it made it real. It made it real. This isn't just a story. This really happened. This really happened. Then somewhere in all of that, it begins being put down upon on paper. Yep. All right. So, chapter 26. After the plague, the last one, this is the end now. Yahweh said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, take a census. Ah, we've been here before. (laughs) Take a census of the whole Israelite community by families. All those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. That is exactly what was done back about chapter, I don't know, 8, 9. Right right back there. When they were going to go through and do a census of all the families, they're going to go through and count them. So this is happening again, except it's not the same people. This is the new generation. The old generation is now gone. Why? Because of their rebelliousness. That's why. That's a simple, straightforward reason. Their rebelliousness their faithlessness to the promise that they made to God. Verse 3. So on the plains of Moab, let me put up the map again. On the plains of Moab, this is across from the Dead Sea. Okay? On the other side lies the land of milk and honey flowing from the north into the Dead Sea. Up there at the top of the map, that is the Jordan River. Okay. So, on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. See, you see Jordan, you see Jericho up there, and that little like little flag where it says Shittim is. That that's where they are. 
That is right at the north end of the Dead Sea. That is probably the area where John the Baptist is calling people out to the river to be cleansed, to be plunged into the river as a, as, as a cleansing, as a symbol of their repentance. Well, so, on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, Moses and Eleazar the priest. Um, where's Aaron? Do you remember? Why is it Moses and Aaron? I don't know. Aaron died. Oh, that's On right. the top of Mount Hor. That remember? That's so right, yes. I know. Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them and said, Take a census of the men, twenty years old or more, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And these were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. And there we go. Verse 5, 6, 7, 8. Um, let's, look at just, let's look at verse 8. The son of Palu was Eliab, and the sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. The same Dathan and Abiram were the commu community officials. Obviously, the translators weren't quite sure what to do with the Hebrew there. Community officials who rebelled against Moses and Aaron and were among Korah's followers when they rebelled against Yahweh. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah. Remember that? Dramatic moment whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men, and they served as a warning sign. Didn't work. We don't really pay enough attention to warning signs, do we? No, we don't. We see them, but we, we just think that the really terrible things aren't going to happen to us. Maybe to somebody else. But the warning signs. How many people put, you know... They know, they know they should go to the doctor. They've got all the warning signs, but they just don't really want to go out of fear or whatever. They, they served as a warning sign. And the Lion of Korah, however, did not die out. And I read that because it's important, and we're going to meet some people in a bit here for whom it's very important, to preserve these family lines. These are not random groupings. These are family lines. In the largest sense, all the Israelites are cousins. Because they could all use their one, two, three, DNA one, two, three, whatever it is, to go back to, to um, Abraham. And then the 12 sons. And so the descendants of the 12 sons and their sons and daughters and their sons and daughters, on and on, they're still all related they're still all related. And so this preservation of the lines, the preservation of the lands that will be given to them by tribe become very important in the Israelite world. So verse 12 is about the descendants of Simeon. Verse 15 is the descendants of Gad. Verse... Um, We get a little, in verse 19, 20, 21, it's a little bit of a repeat of history from the book of Genesis. Um, verse 
is the descendants of Issachar. Verse um, 26, the descendants of Zebulun. Verse 28, the descendants of Joseph. Now, this is tricky. This is the one that throws people off. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons, but he marries an Egyptian woman and has two sons himself, at least two, Manasseh and Ephraim. And both of those clans, the clans of Manasseh and the clan of Ephraim, will be given an allotment of land because land will be given to 12 tribes, but not the Levites. So they one of the, if you really think of them standing, one son stands in the place of Joseph, one son stands in the place of the tribe of Levi in just the counting of 12, right? Yes. So that's how there can still be the allotment of 12 to 12 tribes. So, verse 35, these are the descendants of Ephraim. Hey, I have a quick question. Sure. I wonder how the other clans felt about it that Joseph's was given to. <laughs> I mean, seriously, they're yeah. people. There has got to be some jealousy there. Why I Why does know. Brother Joseph get split in two, you know? Why was that Well, mean? let's see. Let's put a good face on that, okay? How about if we went back to the end of the book of Genesis and the brothers are reunited with Joseph and what has Joseph done for the family? He saved them. He saved them all from starvation. So maybe just out of pure human gratitude and love. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question, Patty. That much of gratitude yeah, and love. I know, we from don't. Those brothers. So thirty eight is the descendants of Benjamin. Right? Are we doing it this right so far? Forty two, the descendants of Dan. Um and he, of course, just like before, if we went back to look at the old one, it would be exactly the same. You get a number at the end. It's this here. Dan is how many? 64,400 men of fighting age. The descendants of Asher. The descendants of Naphtali in 48. The, verse 51. The total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. And this is approximately 2,000 fewer than the census of the first generation, because I went and looked it up. So if you went back and looked it up, I think you'd see it was about, it was 603,000 something. So this is approximately 2,000 fewer. But if you added up the number from each of these 12 tribes, their numbers would add up to 601,730. We went through all this exercise before. This is it this is exactly parallel. It's just a different generation. Because this generation is now going to get themselves ready to go to the promised land. And so what's the hanging question do you think? Even right now in the middle of numbers 25 as we're getting the census again, you know we're getting ready to head out again at some point What's the what's the question? I would think are they going to be brave enough to go this way? Yeah, exactly, that's what I say. Are they going to actually do it? Are they going to chicken out like their parents did? Are they going to prove to be as instantly rebellious as their parents were? So, verse fifty-two. 
Yahweh said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based upon the number of names. Which makes lots of sense, right? Doesn't it make sense that more populous tribes would get more land and smaller tribes would get less land? That makes sense. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance of land. And to a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Sort of, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. Okay, so there's not going to be any favorites here. All that's going to happen is people are going to, going to get allotments of land and there's going to be the big allotment of land and there can be sub-allotments below that. Because you've got the, like the big tribe of Judah. And then within the tribe of Judah, there are more clans. All the way down, the land is going to be allotted. And it's going to be done in such a way as to prevent what? Favoritism. It's going to be done by lot. Because for ancient people, doing it by lot was a way to divine what God's intention is. God would control the dice or the short straw or whatever it is that you're using to, to do this by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. So who haven't we dealt with yet? The Levites. Because they're not going to get land. They're not part of this. Everything that's happened up to verse 57, they're not part of. They're the tribal priests. They're the ones who take care of the tabernacle. Later on, the temple. All the priestly rituals. All the sacrifices. That's their world. These were the Levites who were counted them by their clans. Through Gershon, the Gershonite clan. Through Kohath, the Kohathite clan. Through Merari, the Merariite clan. So remember this drawing I had of the... The blue are the tribes of the priests. Levi, the three sons of... Um, Levi, the Merathites, the Gershonites, Kohathites, and then was Moses and Aaron, and now it's Moses and Eleazar. So. So that was just a little piece of land that they were allowed to live on, this, but it wasn't theirs. This is an illustration of how they set up camp. Right, but since, I mean, the Levites actually had no land of their own, they actually, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. They got to live somewhere. They're 23,000 just yes, men alone. They, yes, you're right. They will live somewhere, but they don't work the land. They don't get right. any income off the land. Right. All of their income is going to come from tithes from the other tribes. Okay. Yep, you're right, Patty. Because you got to figure, it says 23,000 males that are 20 or older, Ed and the women and the kids, we got to be over 100,000. That's a lot of people. Got to be, a, they got to have a place to lay their head too, right? Yes, yeah. So then verse 58 is about the Levite clans. Verse 62, all male Levites, a month old or more, number 23,000. Why not? 20 years old or more. 
All the other counting was of those 20 years old or more. What does that imply? Right, so my, even my numbers I just gave you was off. They are not going to be part of the army. Yeah, yeah. The army's comprised of the other 12 tribes, which in a way is what, you know, in Israel today, the Orthodox Jews in Israel do not serve in the military. They're supported by the state. Now, not to say that they're priests, but there's some analogy here. All the male Levites a month are old, old or more, number 23,000. They were not counted along with the other Israelites because they received no inheritance among them. So you don't have to count them to figure out how much land to give them or anything else. These are the ones counted by Moses and Eleazar the priest when they counted the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the priest when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai, dot, 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 because they are all dead, dead and dead. This is the new generation, the generation that's going to enter the promised land, we hope. Verse 65, for Yahweh had told those Israelites they would surely die in the wilderness and not one of them was left except, so like it's like not one of them, well, like actually except two of them. <coughs> Caleb, <coughs> um, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. And Joshua will become the principal uh, character. Be Joshua will become the leader uh, among the Israelites under God's leadership as they are going to go and enter the promised land in the book of Joshua. The name Joshua and the name Jesus are basically the same Hebrew name. Yeshua, God saves. Okay, so anything else, Patty? No, I don't have any other notes here from anybody. Well, we're good. If we could plow on to 27. Let's hear from Zalofahad's daughter. Wow. That's quite a name, isn't it? I'd look that one up. In my handy dandy <laughs> Bible illustrate Bible pronunciation guide. Yes, right here. Get one yourselves. <laughs> you can just if you struggle with these names like I do. Yep. Zelophehad. <clears throat> the daughter of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machar, the son of Manasseh belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. So this is the little line going all the way back to Joseph with his magic technicolor dream coat. Yes. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, interesting, Hogla, Mil I notice I didn't call her Hogla, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders of the whole assembly, these are these girls, these daughters, these women, at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, quote, Our father died in the wilderness. Right? Their father, he was part of the rebellious generation. They're part of the new generation. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against Yahweh, but he died for his own sin and he left no sons. 
Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So this question of what do you do when a male dies and does, a, a husband dies, a father dies and leaves no sons, what happens to the land? What happens to the name? How can the family be held together? How can the land be held together? And it, it, it takes a fair portion. This takes up a fair portion of the law of Moses in total to, to try to deal with this. Um, because it's really, it's really important. Um, that's why there's a provision in the law of Moses that every, every uh, seven years the land returns to its original owner. Because just these mechanisms to keep the family, the land, the name, the clan all together. Five. So Mo Moses brought their case before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to him, What Z Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. So then God says to Moses, Say to the Israelites this, If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his, his inheritance to his father's brothers. His uncles, then. Yes. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as Yahweh commanded Moses. Sorry. This is a reminder. This is the mechanism that they use, that God gives them to use to try to hold the land, the families, the clans together. Otherwise, it would end up being all dispersed. It's really, in the Western world, how was this done? How was it done to hold land and family together? In the Western world, among those who would be the big landed families, often royalty, the eldest son gets everything. That's it. Second son goes off into the army. Third son goes off into the church. But the oldest son gets everything. You could say, well, that's not very fair. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is, how do you hold the land together? Because if you took the land and you start breaking it up, um, a third to each of three sons, and then they each have three sons, and it's spread again, and within two generations, it would all be all be disappearing into the mist. But eldest son, eldest son, eldest son, eldest son, holds the estate together. That's the idea, anyway. All right, so, Wow. Now the focus is going to turn to Joshua. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. So Joshua's going to make his way up a mountain. He's going to look across 
the um, go back one, right? He's on the eastern side, so he's going to go up there on that on a mountain, on a high high hill, high mountain, I guess I'll call it, and look westward, and he will be able to see the promised land. Mona put here, the other sons are spare. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that what um, Harry called himself? Yes. Spare. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm just saying that's how it works and why it works that way. So, yeah. okay. okay, so God said to Moses, go up on this mountain to Joshua. Oh, Scotty. Then the Lord said to Moses, go up on this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. So Moses, not Joshua, Moses is going to go up, look westward and see the promised land. He has already been told he won't enter it, right? <coughs> because he disobeyed God. God told him how to, how to get water, and Moses thought that he would just strike the rock instead. And it seems like a small story, but I guess it's enough. Verse 13, after you have seen it, you will be gathered to your people, which means you will die. as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, we've been there in the book of Numbers, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their very eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. That is the story where the people are complaining about water and God tells Moses to go over and I think wave his hand and said he strikes a rock the same way he struck the rock um, after the after running across the Red Sea but nonetheless he didn't do it the way God told him to do it verse 15 Moses said to Yahweh may Yahweh the God who gives breath to all living things we all live Paul tells the Athenians I'm going to tell you about the God in whom you live and move and have your being. Have your being. This is, this, is, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. May Yahweh, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in to what? the promised land. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's a really important introduction there of this concept of the leader being like a shepherd. The kings of Israel were to be shepherds. It, it, this is not an idea um, that is peculiar to the Israelites. Among the Sumerians, which we're now talking with the Sumerians, we're talking 2,000 years before this, Kings were depicted with a shepherd's cap on, not a big warrior's helmet, because they were to be the leaders and the shepherds of these of of the people. And in Ezekiel thirty-four, I think, it is 
the um, kings of Israel are taken to task as being poor shepherds. And God says, well, I will be their shepherd. And of course, there's a direct connection from that moment to Jesus saying in John 10, I am the good shepherd. So here it is. Joshua is to be the shepherd of Israel and to be a good shepherd, of course, because God is a good king. So, so the, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So Yahweh said to Moses, take Joshua. This is God's choice. Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before Yahweh. The Urim, if you don't remember, at, at Mount Sinai, one of the things God gives him is the Urim and the Thummim. These are priestly sort of garments, accessories, which could be used for casting lots or otherwise inquiring of God by yes and no questions. Just like you could flip a coin, you ask a question of God, flip a coin, heads yes, tails no. So as long as you ask God only yes or no questions, you'll always get a direct answer if the if you do it with a with the coin. That's that's a thing that they're that's that's the that's how they approach this. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out. In other words, they will leave the camp that they're in. And at his command, they will come in to Israel. God is the commander-in-chief. Joshua is the one who replaces Moses. Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as Yahweh instructed through Moses. This sounds a little bit like ordination, doesn't it? Ordination, if you don't know, is a is a ritual, a ceremony, a service in which <clears throat> elders are ordained into the church and um, deacons as well in the Methodist tradition, but they're on two different paths. But both Jennifer and Lauren are going to be ordained this spring, Jennifer in February and Lauren in May. And it is a commissioning. It is it is this laying on of hands. Um, and it is what it is what it represents, I think, that matters here. It represents the 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 other elders, in this case like Moses. Um, laying his hands on them and giving these people some of M Joshua, some of Moses' authority 
to go out and then lead the people and do this work because Moses is not going to go with them. Moses is going to pass away, going to die on, on the mountaintop. He's not going to see the promised land. So it will be Joshua. All right. So I think what we should do is stop right there because the, kind of the whole deal changes here. Now we're going to get into in the, in the string of chapters ahead more about offerings. And so we will um, go through these and we will talk about them. We won't read every verse, I don't think. Much of it is repetitive, but to where we were elsewhere in numbers. But I want you to see it. Um, and it's all what? What is it all? It is all about God getting them ready, this new generation, to be God's people and to enter into the promised land. And remember, we are now 40 years since the time at Mount Sinai. And this, this new generation has to be made ready. And that is what is going to happen. So, we will pick that up there next week. Yeah, so, you know, 40 years ago, Joshua was practically a kid, a young man. He's an older person now. That's right. He could be a second actor. <laughs> he really, right? For those of you who didn't hear, Patty said, yeah. Um, Joshua could be a second actor at St. Andrew, coming in, being part of the second act ministry, because yeah. he's now 40 years older. Yeah. As indeed he is. Yes, he got to be in his yeah. 60s. Yeah, because he was with Moses. He played an integral part in uh, the book of Exodus, mm -hmm. in the Exodus across the Red Sea and the rest of it. But now he is a much older man, with all the benefits that come from that. And not that God forgets anything, but this is showing, to me, this is showing me God never forgot that Joshua and Caleb were the only two faithful. The only two. The only faithful. two Yes, faithful. let's go into the promised land. And he, you know, 40 years later, feels they're ready to go they're in. Ready. And he's, he knows he exactly who's he going to put. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All righty. All righty. So, anything else? I think that's it. Okay. Let's go to God in prayer before we close out today. Happy, 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 happy Valentine's Day to Happy everybody. Ash Wednesday. Yes. Ash Wednesday. So don't forget there's an Ash Wednesday service at, at noon now, in addition to the one at 7 o'clock. Right. So come come to one come to one or the other. Right. I think the one at noon is going to be at the Hasley Chapel. Yes. Please the, and, check. and it's only 30 minutes. Yes. Hasley Chapel, 30 minutes, yeah. no sermon. Basically an imposition of, of ashes, ashes, I think. Yep. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we get to get together every Monday afternoon. We thank you, God, for your instruction in the Bible, and we thank you, God, for um, Scott's wisdom in helping us um, just make it more clear to us, more real, um, that these were real people in real places in real times, and God is ever faithful to us. He is. Sometimes, you know, we do crazy things that we don't maybe 
feel like we're getting God's blessing right at the right moment, but God is faithful to us, and we need to be um, remembering that, God, all the time. Forty years, 40 years, I, you know, find it hard to believe some things I'm praying for, dear Lord, that when they don't come true right away, I'm disappointed. Help me to be patient, God, and help all of us to be patient um, when we pray to you, Lord. Please keep this group close. God, we pray for your protection. Keep us healthy and safe, and we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment. All this we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody.